Okay, the um, passage this morning is Isaiah chapter 52, verses 13 to Isaiah chapter 53, um, verse, verse 12. Behold, my servant will prosper. He will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. Just as many were astonished at you, my people, so his appearance was marred more than any man and his form more than the sons of men. Thus he will sprinkle many nations. Kings will shut their mouths on account of him. For what had not been told them, they will see. And what they had not heard, they will understand. Who hath believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a tender shoot, and like a root out of parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried, yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. And all of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth, like a lamb that is led to slaughter, and like a sheep that is silent before its shearers, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people, to whom the stroke was due. His grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was not a rich man in his death, because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. He would render himself as a guilt offering. He will see his offspring. He will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great, and he will divide the booty with the strong, because he poured out himself to death, and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he himself bore the sins of many, and interceded for the transgressors. This is the word of the Lord. Let's, let's pray. Father, we thank you for sending your Son, Jesus Christ, to, to die for us, to bear the iniquities of, of our sins, and to, to, to suffer all of the cruelties of the cross for our sake. Father, we pray this morning that you will be with Tom, that your Holy Spirit will be with him, and that you will... Help him as he brings the message to us. We ask, Father, that our hearts would be open, 
that we would be eager to learn what, what you have in your word and that we would seek to follow and obey you. Thank you for your goodness and love to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Good morning. Uh, I have to tell you, it's with, with some trepidation that I approach this message. But, uh, and there are a couple of reasons. One is because um, Isaiah 53 is so familiar to so many people that it's easy to sort of take it for granted and not recognize the miraculous nature of this passage and the miraculous nature of the unity of Scripture around the person and work of Jesus Christ. And, and so I've been praying all week that God would, uh, God would help all of us to hear this anew, to hear it as if we've never heard it before, to think about the ramifications of this uh, for how we present the gospel, for, um, for how we understand the Bible and, and the, uh, the gift that we've been given in the Word of God. This is the fourth installment of our series on the gospel of Christ in the Old Testament. And in each of the previous messages, I said that the goal of this series is to clearly demonstrate two, two essential things. First, that Jesus is the long-promised Christ, the Messiah of the Old Testament, of whom all the prophets spoke. The Son of David, the King who will reign over all the nations of the earth in perfect righteousness and justice on the throne of David and over His kingdom. The one whose kingdom will have no end. Jesus is that person. The second thing that I pray that we will all recognize as a result of of this study over these weeks is that Jesus, the long-promised Christ, is the long-promised Savior. He's the one who alone restores sinful, fallen, spiritually dead people to God. And everybody falls into that, into that category until Jesus saves us. Both Christ's identity as the Savior of mankind and the means by which He accomplishes that salvation are as clearly presented in the Old Testament as they are in the New Testament. Beloved, you can present all aspects of the Gospel of Jesus Christ from Old Testament passages to anyone. And doing that doesn't just apply to Jews, to to ministering to Jews or, or ministering the Gospel to Jews, because I've seen Gentiles' eyes light up when they realize that the whole Bible is talking about the same person and the same salvation. In the first three messages, we saw some, definitely not all, of the Old Testament witness that Jesus is the long-promised King of kings and Savior of mankind. This morning, we come to the how. The means by which Jesus saves sinners. This is the very heart of the gospel message that we're looking at this morning. And this good news is presented with crystal clarity in both testaments of God's Word. If you did not understand that before you came here this morning, I pray you will get it before you leave. Here's the how in a, just a, a nutshell. Here's how Jesus accomplished the salvation of, of mankind. You have to trust Him. Here's how. The long-promised King is the long-promised sacrifice. 
The long-promised king is the long-promised sacrifice. And this completely flew in the face of the expectations of Israel when Jesus came the first time. And that's why it really, it really warrants our attention. The only substantive difference between the gospel of Christ in the Old Testament and the gospel of Christ in the New Testament is timing. One looks forward to the cross and the other looks back at the cross. And they're talking about the very same event, the very same sacrifice of Christ. The gospel of Christ in the Old Testament could be summarized in this way. The long-promised Christ, the Messiah, because those two words mean the same thing, will die in our place to pay our sin debt to God and will be raised from the dead. Now, if you don't know where to find that in the Old Testament, you're about to see. Secondly, the gospel of Christ in the New Testament could be summarized in this way. Jesus is the long-promised Christ. He died in our place to pay our sin debt to God, and He was raised from the dead just as the Old Testament prophets foretold. And that last little clause is critically important. And if your gospel rarely, if ever, makes mention of that fact, that the gospel of Christ that we find in the New Testament is the gospel of Christ that was presented through the prophets for 1,500 years before Christ came, then you're just, you're just tabling a huge part of the compelling nature of the gospel. And so God wants us to uh, be mindful of this. And that's why in the New Testament, all of the New Testament discussion about the gospel, when the prophets are mentioned, <laughs> over and over, when the prophets are mentioned, it has to do with the substitutionary atoning death of Christ and his resurrection. There's a marvelous book that Ron had in the library by R.T. France, and it's it's about Christ in the Old Testament. And, and the, one of the most fascinating things about that book is it shows through the Gospels, it tracks through the Gospels, that when Jesus... Jesus talked about the kingdom a lot. But when Jesus talked about the prophets and what they said about Him, in most cases, He was talking about His death and resurrection. He was talking about Himself as the suffering servant who would save sinners. And he does, he does a great job of demonstrating that in the book. But in Acts 17, I've shared this with you before, but the apostle, this tells us what the apostles, apostle Paul's standard MO was when he would go to synagogues from city to city. When he came to Thessalonica at this point, it says, according to Paul's custom, he went to them and for three Sabbaths, he reasoned with them from the Old Testament Scriptures. And what did he reason? What was he showing them from the Old Testament? He was explaining and giving evidence that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead and, and saying, this Jesus whom I'm proclaiming to you is the Christ. So the Gospel in the Old Testament that Paul was pointing to said Jesus would suffer and die and be raised from the dead. The Gospel in the New Testament, also in one of Paul's letters, 1 Corinthians 15, says that Jesus did die for our sins and was raised from the dead. 
Again, I've shown you this passage. It's very familiar, but let's read it again. Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, in which also you stand, by which also you were saved. If you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. And again, that unless you believed in vain, he explains later in the chapter as if Christ was not raised from the dead, then we all believed in vain. But he said Christ was raised from the dead. I saw him. All right. Christ died for sins according to the Scriptures. He was buried and He was raised again on the third day according to the Scriptures. I know we've seen this before, guys, but I I want with all my heart that you will not miss the centrality of the prophetic word concerning the Gospel of Jesus Christ to the Gospel that we present. We live in a world where, where people see the Bible as the contrivance of men. And the most compelling proof that the Bible is miraculous in nature, supernaturally and divinely given, is the perfect unity of Scripture around the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Apologetics are great, but beloved, this is the best and greatest apologetic. The internal evidence in the Bible that the Bible is miraculous. And when we set aside the Old Testament witness of Christ and do as certain preachers in our modern day have said and unhitch the modern church from the Old Testament, we are throwing away the greatest and most compelling proof that the Word of God through which we know Jesus Christ is miraculous and cannot be the contrivance of men. The New Testament is crammed full of references to the Old Testament proclamation of Christ's suffering, death, and resurrection. Alright, so the Gospel in the, in the Old Testament is that the long-promised Christ, the Messiah, will die in our place to pay our sin debt to God. And He will be raised from the dead. Now we're going to look at that in three pieces. We're going to look at what the Old Testament says about the mode of Messiah's death, which is crucifixion about the mode of Messiah's resurrection, which is bodily, physical resurrection. And then we're going to spend most of our time this morning looking at the purpose of Messiah's death based on the passage that Paul just read. And that purpose is to pay our sin debt to God. The mode of Messiah's death. Crucifixion. Psalm 22 was written by King David a thousand years before Jesus came and fulfilled it. This psalm foretold the mode of Jesus' death. You'll recognize the first verse, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus cried out those words from the cross. In this amazing psalm, it says that it speaks of one who is being publicly killed. He says he's a worm and not a man. He's, he's, reproach and despised by the people. We'll see that again in another passage. He said, all who see me sneer at me. They separate with the lip. They wag the head and they say, commit yourself to the Lord. Let Him deliver Him. Let Him rescue Him because He delights in Him. Those words are almost exactly what we see the crowd saying in the, in the Gospels at the crucifixion of Jesus. 
He says, be not far from me, for trouble is near, for there is none to help. I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue cleaves to my jaws. And you lay me in the dust of death, for dogs have surrounded me. And he doesn't mean literal dogs, because then he says, a band of evildoers has encompassed me. See, he is surrounded by those who desire His destruction. This is a public event. It's a public execution. And then He says, they pierced My hands and My feet. Guys, it was many hundreds of years after those words were written that crucifixion became a mode of execution in any culture. My hands and My feet they pierced. I can count all my bones. He's stretched out and his ribs are, are stretched out. They look, they stare at me. They divide my garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots, which is exactly what the Roman soldiers did with Jesus' garments. The mode of Jesus' death was crucifixion. And it was prophesied a thousand years before it happened. The mode of Christ's resurrection was bodily. Psalm 16 that, that was read this morning. It's one of my, one of my all-time favorite psalms. I mean, maybe we're not supposed to have favorites, but I love that song. It's Messiah's words spoken by David. And in verses 9 and following, Messiah says, Therefore my heart is glad and my glory rejoices my flesh. My flesh also will dwell securely, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. See, he's not just talking about a spiritual resurrection. He's talking about a bodily, physical resurrection. His body didn't undergo decay. Now, both Peter and Paul refer to that passage when they're commenting on the resurrection of Christ in the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 2, Peter says that when David wrote those words, he knew that he wasn't talking about himself. He knew that he was speaking prophetically about the king who had been promised and his line who would come and reign forever. And he, he knew that that was the one who was not going to undergo decay. The Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 13, in this passage on the board, said, as for the fact that God raised him up from the dead no more to decay, he has spoken this way. I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he also says in another psalm, which is Psalm 16, Thou will not allow thy holy one to undergo decay. For David, after he had served, had served the purpose of God in his generation, fell asleep and was laid among his fathers and underwent decay. But he whom God raised did not undergo decay. Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through him forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And through him everyone who believes is freed from all things from which you could not be freed through the law of Moses. Law-keeping won't save anyone. Only the death and resurrection of Jesus will suffice. Let's talk about the purpose of Christ's death. And this is where we're going to spend a bunch of time. That purpose was to pay the, our sin debt to God. 
I've I've shared this story uh, before, but it's never been more pertinent to a particular message than it is to this one. So I'm going to share it again. This is from my own life. When I was 18 years old, I was a freshman in college. I was uh, just a little over a year and a half old in the Lord. I was a baby. And I I was involved in Campus Crusade for Christ, doing a lot of evangelism and discipleship. And I was digging into the Word, and there was so much I didn't know about it yet. And there was so much about the Old Testament especially that I didn't know. One day on campus, uh, in the main square, uh, the quadrangle, I met uh, this elderly man who was handing out New Testaments, you know, with with the Psalms and Proverbs, and I'll give you three guesses as to who he was with. He was a Gideon, like our brother Bob and our brother Russ. I thought that was great. He's handing out Bibles, so I walked up and introduced myself to him, and he gave me a vigorous handshake, and he said that his name was Aaron Shapery. And we got in a, a, just an amazing conversation. And I, I was taking him away from handing out Bibles, but man, it was great. He told me that uh, he had grown up as a, an Orthodox Jew and uh, he had been devout and he had really been in the Word a lot. And he attended synagogue every Sabbath. And he said that he came at one point in his life to realize that there was a passage in the Old Testament that had been withheld from him. The passage he was talking about was Isaiah 52.13 to 53.12. It was the passage that Paul just read this morning. He said that passage was never read. It was never talked about in the synagogues. In fact, it was avoided, steadfastly avoided. Now I'll come back to Aaron in just a moment, but first I want to document that claim. Because uh, all of my Christian life since then, I've heard that said many times, that Isaiah 52.13 to 53.12 is, is it's marked off as unsearchable. It's not presented in the, in the synagogues. And, and I never really saw that that was actually true in any documentation. So I'm going to show you some documentation right now. First, I'll explain it. At every weekly Sabbath in many Jewish synagogues, a passage from the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, is read. It's actually sung generally by a a Jewish cantor. There are 52 readings per year, one for each Sabbath. And in the course of the 52 readings, the entire Pentateuch, the, the Torah, the first five books, is recited. Along with the Pentateuch readings, there are many readings from other passages of the Bible, especially the prophetic books. And of the prophetic books that are included in those readings, the one that is included most often, more than twice more than any other book that is included in those readings, is the prophet Isaiah. And I'm going to show you just two weeks of the reading schedule of what's called the Haftarah, the reading, the weekly reading of the Pentateuch. The the Hofstra actually applies to the additional readings below the Pentateuch citations. The letters that you see in front of the passage reference, the A-S, R-Y, and K, designate different sects or, if you will, denominations of Judaism. A is for Ashkenazic, S is for Sephardic, etc. 
That's just two weeks of the schedule, the 48th week and the 49th week. Now let me ask you something. Is there anything missing there? Open your Bibles if you haven't gotten them open to Isaiah. Look at Isaiah 52, 53, and 54 and tell me what's missing. Yeah. Isaiah 52, 13 to 53, 12 is just not there. In the 17th century, there was a Jewish historian who said that long before he lived, Isaiah 52, 13 to 53, 12 was part of the Haftarah readings. And that it ended up being set aside because it caused too much, quote, confusion and argumentation among the rabbis. I wonder why. Now I want to come back to my brother Aaron. This elderly Jewish believer, this Christian whom I met in my first year of college, in my conversation with him that day, he told me, I was about 18, he told me that when he was about 18, a dear friend of his who had also grown up as an Orthodox Jew walked up to him and, and handed him his Tanakh, his Hebrew Bible. By the way, Tanakh is based on the three consonants T-N-K, Torah, Nevi'im, and Ketuvim, which is law, prophets, and writings. Okay. He handed him, he handed his friend his, his Tanakh and asked him to read Isaiah 52.13-53.12 and Aaron read it out loud and the blinders came off. After he read it, his friend said to him, Aaron, who is that talking about? And Aaron knew who it was talking about before he finished reading it. And with tears in his eyes and with childlike simplicity, he said, it's talking about Messiah. It's talking about Yeshua. Jesus. And that day, Aaron Shapery passed out of the darkness and into the light, and the rest of his life was given over to Jesus. That was the first extended passage that I ever memorized in my Christian life, and I started memorizing it that day. Because I didn't know the Old Testament very well. And what I was shown that day was that the Old Testament has the Gospel in it as clearly as the New Testament does. And that, guys, that rocked my world. That changed, that changed my perception of Scripture on so many levels. And that was one of the most pivotal events in my life that drove me to dig into the Word with all that I had. And that's why, <laughs> that's why it sort of scares me to do this message because I'm afraid that somehow, <laughs> somehow somebody will walk away and not understand the magnitude of what's going on in that passage. And the magnitude of what it means that God, through the prophets, has been talking about Jesus all this time. That was written... 700 years before Jesus came and perfectly fulfilled every single detail of it. There's a marvelous uh, YouTube video called uh, The Forbidden Chapter in the Tanakh. I urge you to look at it. It's in Hebrew. That's why I'm not going to play it for you right now. Um, but it's got captions. And it's, it is phenomenal. It's a young Jewish Christian standing on a busy street in modern-day Israel, I think in Jerusalem, 
And he's interviewing fellow Jews. And his interview consists of handing them a Tanakh and asking them to read out loud Isaiah 52, 13-53-12. And as they read, he interrupts them periodically and he asks them to explain in their own words what it is that they're reading. And by the end of the, of the nine and a half minute video, you have gotten to watch several Jews restate the Gospel of Christ from their own Old Testament. At the end of the interviews, he asked the same question that Aaron's friend asked him. He said, is there anyone in history you can think of who fulfilled these prophecies? In other words, who's this talking about? A few of the interviewees just say no, and and a couple of them look really sheepish when they say it, so you know, and it's pretty clear they're not being, they're not being straightforward. And then one very tall, young, Jewish man says, yeah, man, that looks like it's talking about Yeshua. But, but let me make this clear. I do not believe in Jesus. Okay. Sort of a priori, you know. So let's get the upfront. I don't believe in Jesus. It doesn't matter what the passage says. But there's one man, and I'll show you his picture, man on the right who absolutely gets it. And it, it's beautiful to watch. He says, uh, at the very end, he says, I think I haven't heard these things because when the converta- conversation turns to Yeshua, there's, there's already some kind of barrier where people don't even want to think about him. He said, people look at him like, just like that verse said, they reject him. And I think we're going to see that guy in the kingdom. That's exactly what happened to my brother Aaron that day. His friend shared that passage with him from his own Bible, and he got it. Because the Holy Spirit took the blinders off, and he saw who it was actually talking about. Now, I want to spend a little time showing you why that passage is so compelling. And there are many places we could go in the Old Testament on this theme, but this is by far the most powerful, the most pointed. In chapter 52, verse 13, God says, Behold, my servant will prosper. He will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. So it begins with the promise of the glorious exaltation of Messiah, of Christ. And by the way, the phrase, my servant is the most, it's one of the most common phrases in the Old Testament in passages that the Jews acknowledge are talking about Messiah. I'll tell you right, right now, the primary argument that Jews who have wrestled with that text offer when they come away unbelieving, the reason they say that they don't believe is they say that it's talking about Israel. Because there are many references to Israel in the Old Testament and in the prophets where God calls them my servant. And he, he, uh, personifies Israel as if it was one man. The problem with that is that in this passage it says this suffering servant died for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due. So it's only it only by hermeneutical acrobatics, by jumping through all kinds of crazy hoops, can you make it say what it doesn't say. There was a man who wrote a 900-page book, a Jew, who wrote a 900-page book debunking the resurrection, who sat on a couch in our living room one night, and he was in the process of researching an addendum to the book that would debunk Isaiah 53 as a reference to Christ. 
And I spent two hours talking to this guy, and the best that he could do is tell me what the words could be construed to mean. And I said to him over and over, what do they look like they mean? And he never gave me an answer to that. The people in that video, who are all Jews, will show you the reaction of someone who takes the words at face value. All right. Sorry, I'm rambling a little here. The eventual glorious exaltation of God's servant. And then immediately, like whiplash, the passage shifts to talking about the terrible humiliation and rejection of God's servant. It says, Behold, my servant will prosper. He will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. And then wham! Just as many were astonished at you, so his appearance was marred more than any man and his form more than the sons of men. Said kings would shut their mouths on account of him. And then it says, Who has believed our message? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a like a tender shoot, like a root out of a tender root, a shoot out of parched ground. He had no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was dis- despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and like one from whom men hide their face. He was despised and we did not esteem him. Does that sound like the King of Kings? It is. It's the same servant. And then in verses 4 through 6, guys, in verses 4 through 6 of Isaiah 53 is the single clearest presentation of substitutionary atonement in the entire Bible in either testament. Surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried, yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment for our peace fell upon him and by his scourging we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But Yahweh has caused the iniquity of us all to fall upon Him. Him for us. Him for us. Him for us. Over and over. Until until you cannot be unclear about it. You with me? Guys, if you ever want to explain why Jesus died to someone, take Him to Isaiah 53, verses 4-6. through and, and blow their mind that, and then tell them how long it was written before Christ came. I did, had that conversation with a guy on an airplane once. He started out very adversarial and he walked out, walked off the aisle in front of me and he said, tell me again, what passage was that? Alright. Verses 7 through 8, he went to his death without protest or without effort at self-vindication. Now why would he do that? Well, it's simple. Because he was dying for real guilt, but it wasn't his. He was dying for our sin, not his. And he had no reason to vindicate himself because he wasn't the one that was guilty. We were. Now, he bore our guilt just as if he had done it all. And, of course, you see all of this borne out in the Gospels. He was supposed to be buried with criminals, but he ended up buried with a rich man. Everybody know the name Joseph of Arimathea? a rich ruler of the Jews who came and and retrieved the body of Jesus 
from Pilate and buried him in his own tomb. And then the resurrection of Christ in Isaiah 53, verses 10 through 12. And this, this is rich. The Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, a payment for sin, he will see his offspring, he will prolong his days, the Father will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of Yahweh will prosper in his hand. Now, how does someone who has been executed and buried see his days prolonged? He had to be raised from the dead. And we already saw that that's a bodily resurrection, resurrection from the Old Testament. And we're his many offspring, we and a whole bunch of other people. Does any of this sound like the New Testament gospel to you? Guys, all of it does. All of it does. Two more points from Isaiah 53. This is really, really powerful. In verses 10 through 12, we see the idea of the satisfaction of the Father with the Son's sacrifice. Very vividly presented The Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring, he will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. By his knowledge, by what he suffered, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. And I skipped a really important part of the verse. As a result of the anguish of his soul, He will see it and be satisfied. Paul talks about the propitiation of Christ. That means Christ satisfied the anger of God, the wrath of God. See, Jesus didn't die because somehow we we slipped into sin and, and, you know, we had this bad problem that that he had to solve that that somehow it just kind of happened. No, guys, Jesus saved us from his own wrath. He saved us from the wrath of God that we deserve because of our sin. And let me also touch on this. When it says he was pleased to crush him, I don't believe for a second that's that's saying that God the Father, it's not talking about how he felt about the suffering and death of his son. It's talking about how he understood the outcome. He was pleased. It says he was pleased. He was satisfied and the good pleasure of Yahweh prospered in the hand of the one who had, had sacrificed himself. One of the things I want to mention here is that the doctrine of Christ's penal substitution, that means a substitute bears the penalty. A substitute bears the penalty. The doctrine of Christ's penal substitution, which is a foundational doctrine of Christianity, isn't new with the Apostle Paul, and it's not only for Gentiles. Because this passage right here talks about one righteous person making many unrighteous people righteous in the eyes of God. It is a legal event in which we who all went astray, who all sinned, who, who all reject, are made righteous. And Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, He made Him who knew no sin, sin, that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. In Romans 4.4 4 and 5, He says to Him who works His 
His wage is not reckoned as a favor, but as what is due. But to him who does not work, but believes in him who justifies, whom, who declares righteous the ungodly, to him faith is credited as righteousness. That's what this is saying. 700 years before Christ came and did it. One righteous for many unrighteous, making them righteous. Last thing, and I could go on a long time with this, but the last thing I want to, I want to mention is, uh, is that one of the things that sets Christianity apart from all the contrived religions is that God had to punish sin. And that, that punishment had to be a punishment with eternal weight and magnitude. Because we finite creatures rebelled and sinned against an infinite and infinitely holy God. And so if we had to pay the debt for ourselves, it would take an eternity. But God sent His eternal, infinite, perfect, sinless Son from heaven to earth and He took on humanness and He did what we could never do for ourselves. And in a single day, which is the mark of a, of a decisive victory in the Old Testament, in a single day, He took our iniquity away from us as far as the east is from the west. Never to be connected with us again. And that is true for everyone who believes in Him alone as the one and only Savior. God had to punish our sin and the punishment was death. And here's why. Here's why God had to punish our sins. Last passage I'll show you. Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7. When Moses said, God, show me, your, show me your, your glory. God passed by in front of Moses with his visible glory, but he hid himself so that Moses couldn't look upon him, the fullness of his glory, because Moses would die if he did. But you know what part of God's glory Moses got in full measure? He got the proclamation of God's character. And God said, the Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, Showing loving kindness to thousands. <laughs> forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin. And then comes the but. But He will by no means leave sin unpunished. The beauty of the cross, the beauty of what is laid before us in Isaiah 52 and 53 is that the righteous had to die for the unrighteous. There had to be a payment and we couldn't pay it. And the only one who could was the sinless Son of God. The Son of Man, the Son of God, the Son of David, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It matters, beloved, that both Testaments present the same Christ and the same salvation. Dear Father, we thank You for the power and the miracle of Your living and active Word that pierces to the division of soul and spirit of joints and marrow that lays bare before You the innermost thoughts of a person's heart. Father, Your Word is a miracle because in it we meet our Lord and Savior in all of it. Thank You for this gift. Thank You for this salvation. Thank You for this... 
this kingdom to come and for making unworthy people citizens of your kingdom forever to dwell with you. We, we pray these things in Jesus' precious name and for his sake. Amen.